0: In the 1740s, a series of revivals, Christian tent meetings, passionate gatherings of the newly faithful, swept across New England and other Northeastern states. It brought thousands of people to their feet and to God in in following passionate, charismatic preachers, Beautiful music. It had such an effect on the emotional landscape that for many years afterwards, Western New York, where the revivalists were at their peak, was known as the burned-over district. This tremendous fire of emotion sweeping through people who had, had at best, a lukewarm attachment to their religion, if any. It was called the Great Awakening, the first of many, waves of this sort of fire of feeling. And just as intense as the experience of people in the tent meetings and the fields and the churches came the opposition. And as one of our historians of Unitarianism and Universalism writes, few opposed the intense revival that swept his region in the 1740s with the tenacity and vehemence of Charles Chauncey. A serious and scholarly man given to neither great emotion nor large ambition, Chauncey found in the Great Awakening not only a source of personal passion in his descent to it, but even more surprisingly, a role of leadership in a movement that neither he nor anyone else in New England had contemplated. It would become to be called Unitarianism. He was strongly opposed to the Great Awakening, and as a result, one of his great commitments in the proto-Unitarianism that he formed was a commitment to logic and reason in theology. After all, that was exactly what some of the revivalists were trying to oppose. They thought that religion at the time was too much focused on head knowledge, and they wanted the heartfelt emotions of conversion to sweep over people, carry them away, because being grounded is for plants, as somebody said a few hundred years later. So that was one of the origins of Unitarianism in this country. But one we hear also encompass that time, began earlier, some say in the early 17th century, some pinpoint 1639, a particular essay by René Descartes as the moment, though it's Really, there's no really no particular moment that one can say that the age of enlightenment began. And yet Unitarians and Universalists from their origins and on through today speak of the age of enlightenment in Europe as one of our most important influences. It had a huge effect over different periods of time in different countries, on the development of the scientific method and the sciences in general, helped people to regain and nurture a trust in the mind, helped to fuel a pushback against authority, the authority of unquestioning religion, and, in fact, the authority of certain forms of the state, such as the monarchy, so tied up in religion as the divine right of kings was. It The great enlightenment gave rise to a sense of authority of us human beings to determine our own actions, govern ourselves, govern ourselves, govern our own decisions, and govern ourselves as communities, as societies. And We've just sung its praises in Faith of the Larger Liberty, the the opposition to monarch and creed. The Age of Enlightenment surely deserves much credit for opening up the kind of freedom that we value so much, both in our country and in this religion, the freedom to use our minds and to trust them. So we have these two movements. The Enlightenment, giving rise to a trust in reason and a distrust of the authority of those who would appeal to emotion, such as the church. And then the Great Awakening, which said emotion is is central to religious being. And... According to David Robinson and other historians, the one who I was just reading, it was opposition to this very tendency in the Great Awakening, this this emotional fervor. It was opposition to that that prodded our faith into existence, even before things really got humming about 100 years later with those who gave us our name of Unitarianism. It took some time for us to stop saying, like Charles Chauncey, what we were against and start saying what we were for. We're still working on it. And I think that Chauncey set us on a road of something that we're against. Being unfettered emotion. And we're still struggling with that heritage also. It's so wonderful to have a community where you don't have to check your mind at the door. We say that often in our description of what drew us here or kept us here, in our descriptions to friends about why this might be a religious community to them when they have distrusted religious communities as places of unreason and unthinking dogma and and being carried away by a desire for certainty when there really is no certainty that the mind can have. We can bring our doubts here. We can bring our questions here. As the Enlightenment taught us, those are so important to making wise decisions as individuals and as communities. But as we also sang, it's with heart and mind that we choose to come here. We've embraced reason. We've welcomed it. But that's only the first part of the challenge. The second part, the part that remains to many of our congregations, to many of us individually, and perhaps to our society at large, is how to bring our emotions in, as well, in a way that honors and respects reason, science, the mind. This is not only a Unitarian Universalist problem. It is the human condition, really, and people have written for as long as there has been writing about the sense of having, having what we may call heart and mind, emotion and reason, being split between different sorts of impulses that really can war with one another so that we, our desires tell us to do one thing and our reason another. Maybe it's particularly a problem in Western European inflected culture and we could learn a lot from others. But Unitarian Universalists are very much steeped in that culture. And perhaps that's part of the reason that we feel this problem so acutely. Part of the, pro- part of the reason that we have gone with the enlightenment, shunned the awakening is that we're so dominated by European, middle, and especially upper class white culture. Because a big, big part of that culture is don't show too much emotion. Don't be carried away. Emotion is dangerous. Oh, you can dab away a tear (laughs) if you're moved in the service. You can laugh sedately at a joke, but don't get carried away. This suspicion of emotion in religion and elsewhere is well-founded. You can be carried away on the music and passion of a revival. The preacher is charismatic and speaks so convincingly. The energy in the room is all towards that altar call. People all around you are moving towards this certainty and you long for certainty so much and the music rises and the tempo of your breath and your heartbeat rise as well and you just want to go with that flow. It makes you feel so alive, you are so alive in a way that you aren't usually day to day. And then the next morning, one might wonder, was it real? Do those emotions carry us through? Do they help us make the decisions that we need to make? Are they enough? Are they trustworthy? Doubt, reason, is our check on being carried away in a dangerous way, and we have seen in the centuries since the Great Awakening just how dangerous it can be. Even even then, even the revivalists and their supporters knew that emotion isn't enough. It isn't all. But they hoped that it would bring people in the door, in the door of belief and conviction in a way that no, no rational argument ever could. But people have also been unscrupulous since then, before then, and tragically, devastatingly to our world since. Skilled politicians know how to work up a crowd. It leads to riots and genocides when people follow just their emotions and don't allow that check of reason to say, well, wait a minute. How do I actually want to be? What would actually help us to be a healthy community? And on a smaller but still frightening scale, we've seen it at work in the politics of the United States. The belief in science has plummeted so that we're having arguments that we didn't even think were arguments anymore, such as whether the earth is spheroid or flat like a table. And of course, we see its effects in the people who simply choose to ignore the expert opinions, as if there's something bad about applying science to questions of medicine here in this time of pandemic. We don't want to live in a world where people's emotions rule over their, feeling, their um, reason. We've seen it, and it's really deadly. And yet, the old either or doesn't serve us very well. The clinging only to reason at the cost of emotion doesn't serve us well. That quote about letting ourselves getting carried away, that came uh, my way from an essay by DeRoe Farrer, who is a um, music director of a Unitarian Universalist congregation uh, north of here. He talked about going to, uh, to a concert of uh, Tank and the Bangas and how it was hard for him to allow himself to be carried away by the music. He was trying to be stayed. He was trying to be in keeping with the dominant culture, the culture that he serves in that congregation, and the culture which his own subculture of African Americans has said, you know, don't let your color show too much. Don't get carried away or you won't be able to succeed in that dominant culture. You won't be taken seriously. You won't be respected. He felt it even in a concert. Even though he's a musician and is all about helping to carry people into heights of emotion through music, he was trying to get not too far out there. And he said, at the, that moment, the lead singer spoke, and it felt like the words were directed right at him. you got to let yourself get carried away. Being grounded is for plants. Now, being grounded is a fine thing, but not if we never let ourselves get carried away. And we know this is true now through the findings of science as well that we know that the old split between reason and emotion, it's not actually so simple. So our scientists tell us. There's so much research indicating that reason is greatly influenced by emotion, that it needs to be, that that's part of how we make wise decisions. And if we're not aware of the interplay of what we have thought of as reason and emotion, then we just act upon our biases deeply emotional as they are, under the cover of pure rationality. Here's a quote from uh, the writer Michael Werner in his article, Humanist Morality in a Postmodern Age. There is literally a visceral response in a moral decision. Something evil makes our skin crawl. Protecting a helpless child elates us. Injustice leaves us with a sick feeling in the stomach. The conscience is a physiological state that evolution has found to be useful in our gene survival. The emotions reward or punish certain behaviors we now call moral. Our emotions, not rational decisions, motivate us. Or I would say, not purely rational. I like the way John Dewey put it, and I'll fill in a phrase in the quote that I didn't share in the reading. Intelligence, as distinct from the older conception of reason. Intelligence is inherently involved in action, and moreover, there is no opposition between it and emotion. He calls it passionate intelligence, an intelligence infused with feeling, ardor, zeal. And it's interesting that he uses that word passionate because so does Lubbock in that quote I shared, which Lubbock attributed strangely enough to Plato. I have no idea why. Perhaps he didn't think he would be taken seriously unless he said that his words were coming from a recognized great thinker. He should have had more faith in himself because he pulled out music of all the human, arts, sciences, experiences, creations as something that embodies this passion. Passionate. A dazzling passionate and eternal form while also having and being the essence of order. This service is actually the second in a series I'm giving over the course of a few months, on and off, on why we do the things we do in the service. And today, I'm inviting you to think about why we have music, not the music that we sing. That's a whole other issue, and I'll talk about it at another service, but the music we listen to, the anthem that we have just heard, the uh, beautiful guitar music that was brought to us by Yuri and that we'll hear twice more before the end of the service. I think music, perhaps instinctively, is the thing that we Unitarian Universalists dominated by? We were by white Protestantism and by this fear of the passions of the Great Awakening and where they could take us, and, and by our adoration of the Age of Enlightenment and scientific method and reason. Music is the part that we held on to, even though it's I won't say irrational, but transrational, a rational. Music does so much to bring together, to bring together emotion and what we have called reason into something that I think is akin to Dewey's passionate intelligence. I think that for any religious community to thrive, to really feed the spirit, It needs to speak to the emotions as well as to the reason. It all needs to be welcome in our doors, not left outside at the threshold. And I think in our growth into that mature faith, not the one that was just rejecting the Great Awakening or or, um, following like an idol, like a, 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 a fan, a groupie after its idol, the Enlightenment, I think for us to grow up into a mature faith, the saving of us will be music. It's the part of the services that doesn't offend our love of reason but taps into emotions. Music bridges the body and the mind, the senses, the feelings, like Lubbock's words about it convey. I like that pairing of music as the essence of order and something passionate, as something that gives a soul to the universe and wings to the mind. Now, different music appeals to different folks, of course. Perhaps today's music sends you soaring and perhaps not. We can't have every genre every week. And the question of which kind of genres to welcome into our services is also an ongoing um, conversation and one that I'll be embracing and uh, continuing in our services. But I'd like to suggest that you listen to the music for the remainder of the service, whether or not it's particularly the kind of music you turn on in your leisure time. Listen to it with that intent to allow it to move you beyond reason, not out of its reach, but into a realm where feeling can blossom, a place where the division between reason and emotion can be revealed to be illusory. If it's hard for you to get into this particular music that's before us right now, um, then try really listening closely, closely. Just listen to the vibration of that string, the way it vibrates the air, and the miracle of music, that something so simple, this simple sensation, can reach right in and transform our feelings. Just go in really close and hear what it has to say. You know, I think of this great awakening passion kind of like, it sounds when people describe it, it sounds like the first rush of being in love. When you're in love and and you, you don't even tend your health, you don't eat or sleep properly, your being is overcome by this passion. You don't make very good decisions. You don't stick to your responsibilities it's all forgotten because the emotion is so overwhelming it's glorious and it's dangerous we wouldn't want to live like that all the time and yes you can be in love with somebody for decades but i mean that first rush of fervor that's not really sustainable it's not sustainable as an individual and it's sure not sustainable as a community i mean government would drive drag just grind to a halt, and, and, and stores would shut, and, and we wouldn't be able to handle any of our daily lives if everybody were in that state at once. Fortunately, just a small percentage of us are in the throes of new love at any given time. It's a good thing that it's not out there or in us constantly. And if you have ever been in love that way, you know that it's glorious and you're glad that you have that experience. And if you have never been in love that way, then I pray for you that one time in your life you have that experience. It's not sustainable. It takes us too far from reason. But oh, how alive we are. Just like those people going up to the altar call, they felt an intensity of life. And once you feel that intensity once, you remember it. And cold reason will not be enough. You will seek out a passionate intelligence, which is what makes us whole, which is what draws us to one another and to what is good and beautiful and right. So, let's see if we can follow the music into that place of passion. Passion, which means feeling and also suffering. It's complicated. It's dangerous. But we can't shut it out of our lives or our congregations or our our civic structures entirely. Because it's what makes us fully alive, heart and mind. Faith of the larger liberty, source of the light expanding, as those beautiful words from Vincent Silliman came to us. A larger liberty, not just of the mind, but of the whole being. That's why we have our music, I think. Because music is not of the mind. It's made by the mind. It's ordered like reason and dependent on order, whether it's from Domenico Scarlatti or Tank and the Bangas. It's based in order, and it speaks to the feelings, to the spirit, to the soul, to the body, to the depths of us. So let us listen to our music in the rest of the service as a spiritual practice. Something that invites us to get a little carried away. To not be afraid that we will not be grounded again. We are grounded here in the music itself. And it will allow us to soar.